This game could be your food. Welcome back to This Band Could Be Your Food. I'm Nathan Palin, and welcome to the second installment of my deep dive chat with Eric Chernoff. My old professor and I have been discussing the Who to great depths, the band that invented breaking your instruments, rock operas, and apparently the internet are back for seconds. This should come as no surprise as their lengthy career and our in-depth analysis has only gotten us halfway through this meal. So let's just take a quick coffee break here. And my coffee is supplied by none other than our sponsor, Izzy's Coffee, the only coffee that matters here in America. I suppose you could drink other coffees if you want to, but that would be a disservice to the synapses of your brain that want to be fueled by the best. Do yourself a favor. Go visit the beautiful city of Asheville, North Carolina. No, I didn't say Nashville. I said Asheville. Different place. Go check out some of the local art. Go out and see the Moog Museum. Did you know the Moog Museum was there? It is. Say hello to the last living member of Leonard Skinner. He's there in Asheville as I say these very words. And in between each of these activities, get yourself a cup of Izzy's coffee and tell them to tell Ross or Kristen that I said hi. Got it? Fine. Let's get back to the show. If you didn't listen to episode one, what's wrong with you? Follow the directions. I got it. Forget what I said. Start here. Listen to episode two first. You'd be revolutionizing the way we listen to podcasts. I love that. If you're late to the party, previously on This Band Could Be Your Food, we were discussing the recording of Tommy and how this record changed the trajectory of the who here on in. One quick comment, we will be discussing a bit about the child pornography allegations that Pete Townsend received, which will lead to some other sensitive discussions that you may not want for your children to hear or possibly for you to hear. So please be mindful as you listen to our conversation. Viewer discretion is advised. And away we go. Back to our chat about The Who, starting with Tommy. Here we go. One of the interesting, not interesting, but funny things about it is that even though there is a quote-unquote cohesive story, it is a story <laughs> that is sort of being put together in real time. And one of the funny things I love is they had sort of had the whole thing together. <laughs> I know where you're going with this, missing, except for missing, the pinball thing. Yeah, missing one <laughs> important song, and, and they just brought it to you. And like, what do you think about it? It's like, well, it's good, but it's just kind of missing something. And then, like, and then somebody just said, well, what if... Yeah. And on top of things, he plays pinball. He's like a pinball champion. Yeah. Well, I think the idea came up first. Well, the idea, you're you're right. The, <laughs> the idea came up because actually the person they were asking, well, what do you think, was a, a fairly influential journalist who was like, ah, it's okay. Yeah. And Pete knew that he was a big pinball fan. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so they said, oh, well... You know, what if you play pinball and the guy's eyes lit up and all of this? Yeah. So he went and did the demo of um, Pinball Wizard. And, you know, Pete thought, well, this is horrible. And everybody <laughs> else said, no, that's, the, that's yeah. the hit. And, of course, they were right. So many times that, that happens. Yeah, you know. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the, having the, the go-to things. You know, that one starts with all of the suspensions, yep. which it already, you know, 
become one of his kind of trademark things yep. in his yep. in his compositions. Yeah, does so. a lot of those suspension chords. Yeah. Uh, but once again, they're two different animals. The the studio recording, and then when they actually put it all together and start playing it live as one big piece of music, that's where everybody in the group be, it, they just become different arms of one giant monster, and it took them a, a little bit of time to finally get it to where they wanted it. But as soon as they did, that's where Tommy really took a life of its own. Very much so. Uh, and it probably shouldn't be um, overlooked that the quote-unquote worst gig they ever did in their life, uh, which was Woodstock, did a lot. And when the movie of Woodstock came out, that really put them into a completely different category. Sure. Um, and I'd heard what when before like leading up to Woodstock for them that was like the tail end of them touring it because they they had been touring it for a while and they were sort of ready to get in the studio and start working on something new. So by the time Woodstock happened, which yeah, they say is the worst gig because they were supposed to go on let's say 10 p.m. and they actually didn't start until 4 a.m. What worked out for them is while they were performing it, the sun came up as they were singing, feel me, hear yeah, me. And so it was- See just, me, feel me, yeah. Yeah, so it, it was one of those moments in life that you can't recreate, you can't time it. Yeah. Well, and, and Twistle said rather famously, God was our lighting man. Yeah. For, for the yeah, gig. You yeah, know. and so that, like, I think that the album was already on the charts- and and after this happened, it went back on the charts. Oh, yeah. I mean, it became this behemoth that they couldn't... I mean, and then they did, you know, with with the tour, they started doing literally opera houses. They played the Metropolitan Opera yeah. in 70. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people started to think the name of the band was Tommy. I mean, it was this yeah. out-of-control monster. And this is what eventually leads to, you know one nervous breakdown on Pete's part because he has this idea for Lifehouse and mm-hmm. he's, I mean, try, try, think about trying to explain not just the stuff that I was talking about earlier, the, the Lifehouse concept, the grid concept, yeah, the yeah. what we would call the internet concept to somebody in 1969 or 1970. Sure. And by the way, we're not talking about saying it to Brian May or, or somebody who might, oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. We're talking about saying it to Keith, Keith Moon. Moon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, what the hell are you talking I mean, he was a, Keith was always very enthusiastic. Sure. Uh, I said, okay, yeah, great. Yeah. You know, we're... You know, what do I do? Totally. Sort of thing. And the same goes for Roger, too. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's just, that's the tip of the iceberg for what Lifehouse was supposed to encompass. I mean, there were mm-hmm. there were aspects of mind control to actually get a building to levitate. Uh, it's really, really sprawling as a concept. Yeah. Um, so that's what we were saying earlier about who's next being a kind of a remnant of this. Um, but doesn't matter. I mean, that's where Glenn Johns comes in and, and is yes. so influential and says, okay, and now let's cut this track, and it's going to be an, <clears throat> you know, an amazing track. Um, and a lot of that stuff actually has Pete's demo stuff on it, because you know, synthesizers in those days are incredibly difficult to program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, kids mm-hmm. these days, they have no idea how, yeah. how lucky they have it. And one of the interesting things about this that you wouldn't expect is that Keith <laughs> Moon is forced to 
play along to these synthesizers. So yeah. it's essentially playing along to a click, to a click track. Yeah. And surprisingly, he's very good at it. Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever expect that to be the case, but he was kind of a master. So long as his headphones stayed on his head. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that unfortunately I think is lost for the most part these days, now, now I'm really sounding like an old fart, is people become so almost like slaves to the grid, you know, mm-hmm. when they're doing recording. And if if you've if you're a millisecond off of you know where the grid is, you know an engineer will come in. Part of it's because it's so easy to do now. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can literally click a button, and yeah. we're gonna move that over the millisecond. Yeah. I mean, imagine if they were doing that with like a John Bonham thing. Yeah, you know, it's like it's this weird thing. It it, it there's such a kind of sanitization. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you think of so many great groups. Even just how they recorded things, you know, Van Halen is a really good example yeah. of that. Where it's like, what do you mean overdub? You know, we're gonna do the drums and then do the the bass and then yeah, whatever. No. You know, this, or we're gonna tune our guitars. Yeah, <laughs> detail, detail. Yeah. Yeah. Famously, they, yeah, yeah. Basically, whatever whatever his guitar was tuned to at that moment, he just had uh, the bass player come and tune to that. So all of their things are. I mean, they're not out of tune, but they're not on perfect like, yeah. A440. Well, but, you know, so much of their stuff is just recorded as as like that three-piece, three piece, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, no, no, we just record it live. Yeah. You know, I mean, which gives you an idea of how great a, and solid a group they were. Yeah. But, you know, just getting back to that thing of, you know, Led Zeppelin, kind of a similar thing of, well, it, it's so in the pocket and that doesn't necessarily mean it's absolutely gridded up, Yeah, you know, and that's a lot of people don't, totally. you know, they don't quite get that. Yeah. Um, you don't, you don't, rarely do you get to hear a pocket on recording yeah, anymore. Exactly. Know? It's just like, you know, so, so I agree that uh, to some to a very large degree, I uh, agree with what you said about Keith. It is a little surprising that he could sync up so well. Yeah. But on the other hand, you take something like the like the Baba synth stuff, and it's like, I, you know, I had said earlier, synthesizers were really hard to program in those days, and it's amazing uh, Pete could get any sound out of it. But that's like an iconic in-the-pocket sort of groove, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, well, of course Keith could. You know, any musician worth their salt could groove to that. Totally. You know? Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I I was working on this writing about, uh, I know this will surprise you, writing about Pete Townsend and and his output and all this. And and I've got a whole section where I'm talking somewhat about um, not having a dated sound in in a piece in in music and yeah. one of the examples i bring i talk about is um there's a very famous piece by milton babbitt called philomel It's an early kind of 
synthesizer piece. I mean, this is really early days. A lot of the time, sonic advancements are actually driven by the classical music world. A lot of people don't realize that. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, and a lot of fidelity issues. This is how, um, you know, CDs eventually come about of, oh, we, we want to get it more pristine, whatever. And Babbitt also was kind of pushed pushed a lot of that agenda. But at any rate, Philomel is is regarded as one of the landmark works. And compositionally, uh, it's a really, really interesting piece. Unfortunately for myself, it doesn't matter how important it is as a work, it'll always sound like not particularly great Atari music. Okay. Um, You know, the the synth bit of it. Yeah. And you compare that with like, you know, Bob O'Reilly. And the synth sound that Pete gets, which is a kind of timelessness. Yeah. There's a certain thing in the exact timbres they brought out where it's like, no, 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 this could really be in any time. Yeah. On paper, there's nothing that that would seem to indicate, okay, well, if I do this and, you know, it's, it's not composition never is cooking, you know, preheat the oven to 450, put in a, an exposition, you know, cook for 20 minutes, out comes a sonata. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people try to do that that way, and mm-hmm. they find out, wow, that really is crap. Well, we'll see what happens with AI. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, funny enough, I'm I'm only slightly concerned about the AI, because a couple of years ago, this is an absolute true story, um, Google came out with this Google Doodle thing mm-hmm. about um, Bach chorales, and they fed, I think it was 306 Bach figurated chorales into their computer or whatever. The thing that you could do with it is write two measures of a melody, and it would harmonize it in SATB, right? Uh, Chorale-style harmonization in the style of Bach. Okay. It it took me, I'm not joking, two tries. To break it. Yeah, (laughs) to to get to write the, like, any freshman would tell you that is absolute crap and and not just like from a subjective standpoint i mean bach would never ever ever in a million years write any of that sure. um so for the time being for the time being we're safe musicians and our lucrative careers are safe absolutely yeah. <laughs> well you know people ask me well, how did you get into music theory i say well it's really for the uh fame fortune and women yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they love a good nerd yeah yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of other things that I kind of want to bring up during this time that are really noteworthy within the who. And one of them is Keith Moon accidentally runs over his very, his kind of his best friend at this point. It's a chauffeur. His name is, uh, Neil, what's his name? Boland. Neil yeah. Boland. Yeah. And this is often looked at as the point where Keith Moon sort of pivots from being like a super fun drunk. to being really super dark and really depressing and just kind of like not, not the human being that you you would want to be hanging out with anymore. Yeah. Uh, this, the story is, is, is they were kind of out drinking as they normally do. I mean, it was was funny. Like he he was a chauffeur, but they would go and just sort of drink together. Drinking and drugging. yeah. Yeah. Drinking and drugging. There's, there was one particular 
day, and this was, uh, it seems to be 1979? No. Uh, no. 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 Uh, it seemed no, to happen January 4th, 1970. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're out somewhere, and they sort of get mobbed. I can't remember why it was they were mobbed. Just interrupting to get my facts straight here, I uh, pulled out a copy of this book called Moon, written by Tony Fletcher, which is a, a great book, but very dark about Keith Moon, obviously. And in it, he mentions that uh, the reason they got into a scuffle is because they were all attending the grand opening of a new bar called Red Lion. Interesting, because that's a the name of a bar that I play at all the time with my band. Uh, anyways, they were going there because it was the uh, owned by the son of somebody that uh, Keith Moon knows. And apparently there was about 30 skinheads at the event. And as the night wore on and Keith Moon got drunker, uh, insults started being thrown about between Keith, who is always forever the smartass and, uh, you know, the skinhead. So, yes, it turns out uh, as Keith Moon and the group were leaving because they were saying things were starting to get a little dark, you could feel the tension as uh, Keith's entourage were leaving, which included Neil Bullen. Uh, as well as his wife, Kim, they were getting into the car, and that's when they started getting hit by coins and rocks and things of that matter. And uh, his bodyguard, Neil, came out to sort of fend off the crowd, and Keith jumped into the driver's side and started driving the car. And um, it was very gruesome. Uh, Neil had gotten stuck underneath the car, and so it was um, an awful, awful scene. So anyways, I just wanted to make sure I... Got that story right. Carry on. Yeah. As you can only imagine, you know, for Keith at this point in time in his life where he's everything is going right for him, for him to lose his best friend. At, yeah, you know, and it, and it's quite a gruesome running over, too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like he ran over his legs and he had injuries. He he was really yeah. crushed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and this this sort of sticks with him for the rest of his life. It, it's hard to say if he really gets over it. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Um, you know, they, it's funny, you mentioned about the, the drugs in the group and all of that. Um, Tommy and, and the period immediately after it is actually a period where, of all things, Pete rather famously cuts out drugs for many years. Mm. Uh, he, you know, he's not really boozing. He's not on drugs at all uh, to speak of for uh, about six years or so, six, oh, wow. seven years. Um that doesn't make him Roger's best friend. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, especially the imagination. No. But he is, you know, he's sober during those years. But Keith, of course, um, and and John to whatever degree, but Keith, rather famously, he can't really function without that. I mean, Keith's own death is one of those great ironies. He was, he, Keith, for those of you who don't know, Keith overdosed on a drug he was taking to help him get off of, uh, you know, alcohol. Yes. Um, and and it probably was an accidental overdose. It was 100%. But that's, the, that's who Keith was as a person. I mean, they found, I think, I think it was 32 pills in his stomach. Yes, he would but, always take a handful. Yeah. Whereas this drug, first off, should not have should been given have to him. A, yeah, not without, not without supervision. He should have been in a hospital if he was on it. Yeah, so he uh, never has been one to just follow 
the prescription, just take one or two or whatever. So he took a bunch and yeah, overdosed on him. And yeah, it's, it's so tragic because the whole reason is he was trying to get off alcohol. He was trying, but he was young. Yeah. How old was he? 30. Well, <laughs> was it 32? Was, yeah. 32. That's the famous, or is it, it 27? No, no, no. He's not at the 27 club. He's okay. The reason I was laughing is because actually, of course, nothing can be simple with Keith. Yeah. Um, on his famous 21st birthday party, which they made a huge hoopla about it because he wanted to be able to legally drink in the States. And, and it's a very famous party. Um, yeah, there's debate about whether it was actually the 21st or not. Oh, so, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it was like, okay, well, when exactly was he was he born and yeah. whatever. You know, it's mystery upon mystery. This is where he drives so. the car into the pool. Yeah, which some people say never actually happened. Oh, uh, yes, it, it is no proof. It is the one actually where he he definitely lost his tooth at that one by jumping two, it. Two of them. Even. Yeah, yeah, into the pool that didn't have water in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. And um, got them famously banned from hotel inns. Yeah, uh, the holiday inn. Holiday yeah. Inn, yeah. It's a big day. Yeah, these things happen. Yeah. When they were inducted into the Hall of Fame, his daughter, Mandy, accepted on his uh, behalf. Uh, obviously, had been dead for, you know, yeah. quite a while at that point. And she said something like... Um, Even though I know my father was banned from this hotel, and that's one reason that he couldn't be here to accept the award, I'm very proud to accept it on his behalf. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. it was at the Waldorf. Yeah. One of the really eye-opening things that I had gotten from Roger Daltrey's autobiography is he said that most hotel chains and companies were welcoming for the who to come yeah, because <laughs> they were going to destroy a room. So it, it would be a matter of let's put the, we've been, we've been meaning to remodel this room. So we're going to put Keith in that room and Keith is like, you got it. And he comes in and destroys the room and the, the who would famously pay out cash for any damages that they did. So they would give them a, a, a bunch of cash and then they would claim insurance on top of that. So the hotels famously all loved it. Yeah. But eventually, yeah. I mean, there were all the, you know, there's a very famous story, uh, um, the Copenhagen incident where <laughs> they accidentally flooded a whole section of the hotel, trying to move this, gigantic waterbed off of its frame. Oh, yeah. uh, and, you know, but they were very smooth talkers, uh, especially Keith, of course. And he kind of said to the management, well, I did call ahead to make sure that I could hold this many bodies at a time. And, yeah. you know, and I demand this and that. So, you know, they would occasionally get out of things. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. totally. Um, and it's also around this time where Roger Daltrey is wondering why it is that they keep going on successful tour after successful tour and never having any money. money. Right. Like they, after they finished the tour for the, who's next album, the, the management is just like, you guys are just doing so great. You're only $600,000 in debt, which is, you know, much better than you guys used to be. So, and Roger, apparently while he's on tour was always on a hamburger diet. He would eat one hamburger a day and save all of his money so that when he got to the other end, he would have some money. And he would see that everybody else had money. Uh, you know, the, the managers were all very well taken care of. And, uh, but the problem was, is, is their manager, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp were heavily into drugs. In a, obviously, in addition to, to Keith Moon. Uh, but, you know, he was like getting into heroin and, 
and you know you can't really be led by people who are on drugs because everything that they're doing they're just sort of looking out for themselves at that point and Roger started to recognize that and dropped them as the management and it was one of those things where Pete Townsend was against the idea yeah off the bat he just said these guys are not looking out for our best interest and Pete said no way these the, they're the most important characters in the history of the who becoming anything because you know it's very true like obviously the who has a sound and they they have a you know, a method of doing things and, and, and it can't be understated their talents, but it really does take an outside force to take a look at the sum of the parts and start steering it in the right direction. Like very early on, they would, they would see a dance and they, they would see somebody do something in the band and they would say, Oh, that move that you just did, you got to do that again. Make sure that you're doing it every night. And you, you know, most, most things that the who did is, is because, you know, Kit told him to do it. And well, they, they followed his direction, and that's you know like uh, well, them be, them becoming a mod band in the first place, which was like their first ticket into popularity. Well, yes and no. I mean, Kit wasn't really responsible for that particular thing. That was more of Pete Meaden, who was before oh. Kit. Okay. Um, but the thing about Kit was he was the son of Constant Lambert, who in the states, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know Constant Lambert. He's he's much better known in Britain. Um, he was a conductor and a composer, really, really interesting composer, actually. Had stayed in Paris uh, and made a huge splash. He was the first conductor, I think, of the proms. Mm. Uh, he had done some ballet stuff. Really interesting uh, musician, but a classical musician. And so Kit, growing up, this was his environment. So when they hook up, Kit uh, and, and Chris Stamp, it's Terrence Stamp's brother, by the way, the mm. actor. Um, they weren't originally looking to manage a group. They were looking to make a kind of film documentary thing. Mm, and they yes, happened yes. upon The Who. Uh, uh, yes, and then, right. you know, said, okay, there's something bigger here. Let's do this. Sure. Um, but Kit was really instrumental as an ideas guy. And very importantly, both he and Chris, but particularly Kit, were incredibly supportive and um, encouraging for Pete and his writing and his ideas and developing his ideas. Mm, you know, yes. Kit never really said anything to speak of negative to Pete about any of it, even the, the not so great demos. He said, oh, well, that's kind of an interesting. Maybe you could do this thing. And, yeah. you know, and, and uh, a quick one came about just as an example. Pete had done this kind of joke thing for Kit's birthday. You know, and 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 this, again, I'm not... And so uh, Kit said, ha-ha, that's very funny, but there's an interesting idea here. Why don't you write something big? You know, cinemascopic, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's where... There's a very, very famous Pete qu uh, quote about this, where he's, he told Kit, you can't write a 10-minute song. You know, rock songs are two minutes 50 <laughs> by tradition, yeah. you know, and he goes on this whole spiel about, well, you know, you might be allowed a, a, another chord in the, in the chorus, you know, yeah. you, you might be up against the committee, yeah. all this sort of stuff. Um, so Kit as this sounding board is frankly just more important than anything else. I mean, yeah. he's there 
as Tommy is being developed in the studio, bouncing off ideas. Yeah. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, he still has his his hands on the knobs. Um, And yeah, I mean, they're really in bad financial shape for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which is the constant smashing of the instruments. Yes. Yeah. And the hotel rooms. Well, yeah, though, I think that's less so during the period that we're talking about than later. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but believe me, smashing up a couple of, uh, you know, SGs and a few Rickenbackers a week is going to put a little bit of a a hole in the pocket. But famously, they would glue many of these instruments instruments back together. Well, yes, exactly. But um, there's only so much, despite all rumors that super glue and duct tape will do. Um, But I I think, you know, speaking of um, a quick one, it might be the classic example of how you can compare them to other groups at that time and where they are, not only in their career, but also in recording and what they can afford to do. So, you know, you listen to the Beatles and from pretty early days, it it's not just the writing and it's not just the um, the performance. The recordings themselves sound great. You know, the small faces, I mean, they're working with Glenn John from very early days. And at a certain point, they ju- it just sounds beautifully yeah. mastered and engineered and all that. The Who, you get moments of this, right? Yeah. So you get on uh, Who Sellout, you get um, I Could See for Miles, which is one of the most sonically beautiful things ever mm-hmm. committed to, you know, yeah. to a recording. I know that you have because there's magic in Was but very proud of that song. As he, justifiably so. Was, the loud, was it like the, the loudest song or something like that? When it, he, it, well, he considered it like the best thing he could possibly have done yeah. at that point. Yeah, and, he, after doing that, he's like, there's nothing more I can do. Yeah. <laughs> hey, here's a side bit for you. I Can See For Miles and Miles was actually an inspiration to Paul McCartney to write the song Helter Skelter. It was sort of his reaction to... Townsend claiming that I can see for miles and miles is the nastiest, loudest rock and roll song that's ever been put out. Paul McCartney famously said, we'll see about that, and then wrote this. Nice job, Paul. Carry on. At, at that point in their history, that's his kind of Waterloo sunset, you know, yeah. it's like, how do I even follow this? Uh, and he rather famously said they spat on the bit British public uh, when it didn't, you know, go to the top of the chart. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, when you go through a quick one, there's a section towards the end, you know, um, vocalization is a big part of lots of music traditions. And so that's how you get people singing things like oohs and ahs and las and mm-hmm. things like that. And there's a section that, towards the end of a quick one where they're singing cello, 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 cello. And the reason they're doing that is that's what the cello would have sounded like had, had they been they able to afford, afford a cellist. cellist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? Totally. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, compare that with the Beatles who say, well, yes, let's get together a hundred-piece yeah. orchestra for yeah. today. and No see. problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
very different uh, lifestyles. It, it's 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 they're just in a very different time. But Tommy changes all that, mm. and not the the album to whatever degree, but everything that happened after the album. Yes, yes, just yes. it's a game changer. And yeah. then, of course, the movie later with Ken Russell yeah. that you mentioned. So speaking of, let's let's get back on that road. Uh, after they get done touring and and they change management, the band s- decides that they're going to go on a six month hiatus. And this is sort of the beginning of Keith Moon losing his ability to play drums because Keith Moon does not practice the drums. Yeah. Whereas if <laughs> they, they practice him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when they're on the road, that's when he's playing the drums and that's when he's getting better. So he kind of stops. Uh, and in this period, that's, that's when Pete is starting to write Quadrophenia. Their, their next record. Yeah, uh, after, famous, after Who's Next, yeah. So yes, after a, Who's Next, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Who's Next, obviously, was an amazing-sounding record because they got Glenn Johns to record this album. And it also, as we'd said, it was, you know, it, it was it was trimming the fat of, like, a larger piece, but, you know, within the piece, you had a just a ton of killer songs. Mm-hmm. And so they just focused on the, the, the quality of these great tunes and they... And they're they're very much, I, I think, in a lot of ways, on the top of their game individually too. You know, Pete's mm. voice really develops at that point. Yeah. If you even if you listen to Tommy, the studio album that he does quite admirably on the things that he's singing, but there are all sorts of moments where he really does sound like a choir boy who hasn't quite hit puberty, but he's right there. Sure, sort of thing. And part um, of the reason is they're 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 kind of working on this as it's being written. Whereas who's next is something that they've been sitting on for a long time and trying to put it all together. So Roger says this is really the first time where he's had a number of of uh, weeks or months to get comfortable with the song and sort of know the song. And certainly anybody knows that when you are performing a song, it's not as good the first few times you get through it. But if you've, you know, like a, a band that's been on tour for a year, like these songs are, you know, they just come out of them like. Yeah, you, well, you've lived with it. You've ingested it. You've digested yeah, it. Yeah, and so the performance of these songs reflects that as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the, the amazing songs on that album is Going Mobile. Yeah. Because it, actually, that's them as a trio. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's the, th- the three of them playing and Pete singing. Yeah. So, you know, Roger's not on it. I think a lot of the times, you know, you had mentioned earlier that that bandmate of yours had given you this disc of, here's your introduction to Who stuff. But Glenn, a little more that was on there, by the way. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, sometimes the real gems for what each individual brings to that, you know, recipe as mm-hmm. you're saying earlier is sometimes found in the less well-known pieces you know so for example if somebody asks me about oh i always hear john entwistle is like the most amazing bass player ever and whatever and you know what should i listen to uh there are the really popular things where you're saying wow that's really great and you know there's the bass break in in my generation But actually, the, the tune that I think on record that he really shows kind of his style is um, Dreaming from the Waste. Pete hates 
hated playing that live, by the way, right. that, that track. So that's on uh, Who By Numbers. And once it gets through the, like, 30-second introduction, it becomes a kind of lead bass guitar tune for good portions of it. Yeah. Um, not the entire thing. There are spots where he lays back. But it's this idea that each individual will bring something to that mix. And, you know, you can often find where they're shining yeah. in maybe unexpected places. Quadrophenia is just amazing top to bottom, including the bass parts. But, sure. But <laughs> part of that's because John kept going into the studio and redoing his bass parts. Oh, he did? Yeah, he was, uh, and not because any of them, I mean, it was John Entwistle. It's not like, okay, I was just bored. And, okay, oh. well, <laughs> I got a day, you know, everybody has a day off, I'll just go in and yeah. redo this. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things about that album is is it was recorded in like a studio they essentially made themselves. Is that what I'm understanding? I mean, this, this studio was made for this album. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I because mean, it's part of it to, was it's done supposed as to be quadraphonic. It's supposed to be for quadraphonic. Quadraphonic, yeah. yeah. Well, that that caused big problems uh, too. I it, they did some of it as a, a mobile studio thing. I think they used Ronnie Land's mobile studio for some of it. Good memory there, Eric. Yes, part of it was recorded at Ronnie Lane's mobile studio. Ronnie Lane is the original bass player of the Small Faces and the Faces. He left the group at a certain point and. Uh, invested some of his time in this mobile recording unit. The Who had to use this because their quadraphonic studio wasn't finished yet and they wanted to get started. So that's why. Carry on. And then there were all these field recordings that that Pete did, quite literally field recordings sure. uh, for all the atmospheric things, the, the sea and the, yeah. the water and all that. Um, yeah, the quadraphonic thing, it never really took off. I mean, it, yeah. it eventually, as as you know, turns into a kind of surround sound yeah. idea. That, yeah. That's the basic idea. Uh, Pete, of course, being Pete, isn't satisfied with just having that huge advance in um, sound technology. He's going to make the album, and it's going to be recorded that way and played back that way, but sure. also it's going to be performed live that way, but yeah. we'll have the backing yeah. tapes and all this. You know, it's just, just that idea of his vision so often is ahead of the technology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 the original Quadrophenia tour was, was infamously saddled by the fact that, well, it isn't, you know, 2023. He can't just literally click a button and it's going to be perfect every time. Yeah. No, they were they using were tape and actual tape. Yeah. That would frequently like rip. Yes. Not work exactly to plan. Yeah. In, uh, in multiples of ways. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, I mean, at a certain point, he became very, 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 very frustrated. Yes. Uh, on tour, on stage. Yeah, you know. yeah. There, there is uh, multiple uh, reports of there just being like fights within man, band members or sound technicians that are working with them. Yeah. There's one where you know Pete threw a tape machine at his like main like front of house sound guy, and it just it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's disaster. Yeah. Um, and uh, Keith Moon is still dealing with the death of his friend, and also he's having failed relationships at this point. Like his his longtime wife, I think, has finally left him for yeah, good. Kim. The, yeah. yeah, Kim finally leaves him for good, and and so and that, and and ends up with um, Ian McLeggan. Mac yes. from from small faces yeah so that's d doesn't go over too well with with keith no but 
And with all these things, these, these things happening, like the, the, the band obviously has made an amazing record, even though it said the final product does not sound as good as it did in the studio. And Roger gets pretty upset about that. And he's like, when we were in the studio, this thing sounded absolutely incredible. But the way that it was mixed, it's mixed in a way that you can't go back and redo it. Like everything, all of like the, the, the sound effects and the delays and the reverbs are printed to tape. So they, they, they don't even have the luxury of going in and trying to make it sound any better. It's like, yeah, though the, there have been releases, which have, you know, I think John Astley did at least one of the, the kind of reboot re-releases and it sounds great. You know, and it, it definitely sounds better, I think, than the LP, partly because of course the LP was recorded in quadraphonic. Who the hell has that yeah. set up? Yep. Um, you know, but, one of the things that that's maybe worth considering about why so much of their output and there are there are definitely pieces very specifically where this can maybe speak to their importance is how there's a certain game changer idea to how we even think about their music all right so here's what i mean it's it's very very different than what usually happens in the classical world versus what usually happens in the pop world okay in in most popular music what you think is the song is not the song it's a recording of the song okay sure. yeah yeah and and sometimes there's debates about well which is the quintessential recording of the song but even in those cases it's referred to as a cover, right? You don't get, oh, I'm going to perform a cover of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Because it's not actually any individual performance. It, okay, it's it's, it's it's the music itself. Yeah, it's it, it. The recording of piece whatever is not actually the piece. It is an interpretation, a presentation, a um, resuscitation of what the work is. And the Who, I think, are one of the first groups where that becomes an actual viable argument you can make about some of their output. So case in point is Tommy, which, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the studio recording is great, but it does have problems. It's hardly perfect. Yeah. The work itself transcends that recording, yep. which is why people are still listening to it. But uh, there are a thousand other performances of it and incarnations. Sure. There was the London Symphony Orchestra recording was done in 1970, yeah. 71. There was the ballet. There was the, the Tommy musical. There was the movie. And all of that kind of speaks to the fact that it's, no, it's not about their performance of, um, you know, Acid Queen on on the LP. Yeah. It it's, it's transcends that. And so it there's that very subtle shift between what the work is versus what the recording is. Mm -hmm. And Quadrophenia, I think, is very much in that kind of category, except that Quadrophenia, even the LP... Yeah, is it the most amazing sounding thing? No, but it's a damn good recording. Um, and then the the remixes and the fixes and the tweaks, 
really have embellished and and supplemented and and made it into something you know wonderful yeah. and and that's another piece that has gone through other incarnations over the years there's like the orchestral redo of it and all of that yeah. but yeah. the recording itself it's interesting quadrophenia is the only who album that's um you know of the canonical stuff up through it's hard um where the entire thing's by pete townsend there's no other who oh. album no that. kidding. Yep. Not even so. Tommy's got several. Yep. And Twistle, it's got um, I Said to the Blind. Yeah. Um, just go down the list. Yeah, um, sure. But Quadrophenia. Well, I know who's next See? is that way. I know Roger has a couple of. No, not who's no. next. No, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the Who Sellout. Who Sellout. Roger oh, well, has a couple of Roger tra- tracks well, on there. And that's where he kind of says, all right, well, forget it. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, who Sellout. Um, not so much, Roger. You might be thinking of um, Quick One slash uh, Happy Jack. Um, so Who Sell Out is, um, has quite a bit of end twistle on it. Yeah. Uh, Heinz Baked Beans, Medak, Silas. Well, yeah, but Cindy. end whistle is still like contributing things throughout. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, in fact, that's sort of his job is like, can you fill in the holes here? Like for Tommy, can you write... Uh, Uncle Ernie and what was the other one he does? Yeah, well, I Uncle Ernie's an um, interesting case because Pete couldn't. He didn't feel that he could do it. He It was too close to his personal experience. Yeah. You know, Cousin Kevin is the other one you're thinking of. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, but Quadrophenia is really in a league of its own. Yeah. Uh, it's. I'm not 100% sure you could completely get the story listening to it, but yeah. you could more than Tommy. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the original... Like Tommy, it's unclear even what happened, let alone things that kind of got crystallized as, okay, there was this murder, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, was it the father who murdered the lover? Was it the lover who murdered the father? Sure. You know, we, what exactly happened? Who did it happen with? Whatever. And I'm speaking very strictly about if you're just listening to the album. Yeah. Right? I def, defy anybody to, who doesn't know it to sit there, listen to Tommy, and then tell you what the story is about. Of course, yeah. But that also is, that's not a condemnation. That's long been a thing in classical music. There's an entire thing of program music where you literally tell the audience what the story is, and then here's the music that's going to go with it. And if you don't give them the story, there's nobody who's going to come away listening to, um, you know, pick your famous program piece, Symphony Fantastique, and say, well, obviously, yeah, that's when he ODs and then yeah. gets his head chopped off by the guillotine. And yeah. now he's, you know, at a witch's Sabbath celebrating his own death. And here he is, blah, blah. I mean, you might get little snippets sure. of the story from the music. Yeah. But there's a reason the program's there to tell you what you're going to be listening for. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, stuff yeah. like Tommy and Quadrophenia, I think, you know, run with that. Quadrophenia comes with a story you know, printed with it, saying, right. here is the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now listen to the thing. Mm, totally. Makes sense. Um, so would this be an, the appropriate time to discuss uh, all the controversies with Pete Townsend around the 2000s? He is uh, rated for supposedly having, like, child pornography in his house. Yeah, well, it... it it's not exactly has child pornography. Uh, what had happened, uh, Operation Or, is that um, he had gone online and had, um, you know, what he says is he was in doing research into um, 
these kind of nefarious Russian websites which were trafficking. Yeah, this stuff. This is like and, so, like sh- shortly after he's starting to discover that that he has been abused as a child. Yeah, um, and it's also uh, it might be noted well after he's. I mean, Pete has a very big mouth, uh, and it's well after. And knows. And knows. How do I not? (laughs) Anyways, that is true. Um, And so he's already, well before this, been um, publishing essays and whatever uh, about uh, all of the abuse and and in fact the danger of the internet uh he, he had an, uh, an essay called a different bomb yeah so he had published a different bomb uh well prior to this 2003 uh, this is when it says it well he he might have written it before it came out no oh because, you mean the actual essay yeah no no the the essay had come out on okay. his website okay. uh for sure Long story short, there was an entire slew of one thing kind of compounding another. When he had gone to investigate this thing, he put in his credit card number to uh, actually just see what was going on. He didn't download anything, but that's how he kind of got into that dragnet. Uh, And then um, rather... I don't think it was rash, I, but it was a very, very bad decision. You know, there, he woke up, there were a swarm of reporters outside of his place, and a statement was made. And he was told later by the police, that's why we had to arrest you, right? Is we can't, like, have you do that and then not arrest you. Yeah. In, in Britain, there's a thing called a caution, which is a actually has a legal standing. And so he was never like put on trial or something like that. He was given an official caution. Mm, um, card. Yeah. And later, one of the, the main officers said, it looks like Mr. Thompson maybe admitted to something that he didn't do, <laughs> you know, um, which isn't to say that he was completely innocent in the whole thing. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, I mean, he did put in his credit number. He did yeah. this thing, but yeah. it's not like he sat there and, yeah. you know, he, he's not Gary Glitter. Against Gary Glitter, he is being tried under his real name of Paul Francis Gadd. He has been sitting in the dock, shaking his head from side to side and muttering to himself as guilty verdict after guilty verdict has been returned here at Southwark Crown Court guilty of the attempted rape of a child under the age of 10, guilty of five indecent assaults, guilty of sex with a child under the age of 13. That one charge alone potentially carries a sentence of life in prison. He is. All- he doesn't have a, a yeah, um, infatuation with. Yeah, um, he doesn't have a, a warehouse of, of child pornography. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember very distinctly when that happened, actually. It's been interesting kind of era yeah, since then and, and things that have happened. There's been a lot of very positive things that have come yeah. out beyond Me and, Too and all that. Sure. And and I only, I only I actually bring it up because I never heard the resolution of what had happened. Like I remember like in the in the the way that obviously our news cycle works is the second something happens they're ready to jump on them. Um but I never heard like the resolution of like what had 
what had transpired and like, how was everything settled? Yeah, well, everything was settled. He got cautioned and that was that. When dust-ups like this happen, and that's that's a kind of flippant word. I'm, I'm not trying to minimize this at all. Um, but it's less sensational to say, yeah, and, you know, he's in the clear and now get on with the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, that's not going to be the same um, cachet as, oh, and we got him and he's arrested and now he's on trial and all yeah. of this. Um, he did find out, he, he got a um, serious medical diagnosis during that time, which he says wouldn't have happened had he not been waylaid by that arrest because he, he was hunkered down. He couldn't go out. He couldn't do his normal stuff. And oh, so wow. I think it was a, uh, he had a, a um, like pre-cancer or something like that. Oh, wow. I, I can't remember the specifics of it, mm. but um, it essentially for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of resolved itself. Well, that's good. When stuff like that happens, obviously, I mean, like legitimately, I like Gary Glitter or Jimmy Savile or whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's absolutely horrific and should be absolutely uh, condemned of what they were doing, obviously. And I mean, this is something very, you know, uh, personal for me as well. I mean, I, I suffered through some of that myself uh, when I was younger. Um, and so... The, the the stories which do kind of resolve um, don't get as much publicity. I mean, yeah. a good example of that is um, Roy Harper, who you know is a great musician, um, probably unfortunately best known um, because there's a, there's a Led Zeppelin song, Hats Off to Roy Harper. Um, it, there's that and the fact that Roy Harper is the one who sings uh, Have a Cigar for the, the Pink Floyd song. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But he got arrested on, I think it was... I'll take it from here. In 2013, charges were brought against Roy Harper over allegations that he had had non-consensual sexual relations with two women who were 11 and 16 at the time, somewhere between 1975 and 1977. One of the women has said to have attempted suicide over the matter. In 2015, the case was dropped due to lack of evidence, which means exactly what in this kind of thing. Feel free to draw your own conclusion, I suppose. Carry on. But I, th I think we hit some pretty good points. What are we missing to your average Who listener? Yeah. In their worst moments, there's still exciting things to find out about them. And, you know, what I was saying earlier about if you, and this goes for any music, but certainly about Pete Townsend's writing, is you can go in with whatever level of interest you want, but the, the more you delve into it, the more the subtleties will come out. And yeah. that's a big part of listening to music is actually listening to it. And, you know, it's like what I was saying two hours ago, whenever we started about you know, you get into an arena and you've got all these people shouting, you know, who are you? Or won't get fooled again and they think, oh yeah, man, we're going to get wasted. It's actually not about that. It's about yeah. literally wasted lives and, you know, and just yeah. getting a larger context. Um, you know, Pete Townsend easily is most famous um, solo song is Let My Love Open the Door. Mm -hmm. And it's a 
complete spiritual. Hmm. You know, I, he's always been very straightforward about that. And if you followed his career enough, you already knew that. But yeah. it's nice to have him confirm it. Sure, yeah. Because I think that's one of his real great gifts is, you know, as he says, not about to name a name just to get some cheap airplay. So you, you could listen to that as a great, you know, uh, hey, babe, going to pick you up sort of song. Yeah. But the second you understand that from his perspective, which doesn't have to be your perspective, but from his perspective, the narrator is, you know, Baba. It's God. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it, it takes on a very different meaning of, yeah. you know, release yourself from misery. There's only one thing that's going to set you free. It's my love. You know, I give you a four-leaf clover, all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so he has an almost unique way of um, being able to project two different things. And it's not always in such a lovey-dovey way, too. You know, one of the great secrets in a lot of their early writing in particular is some really pretty harsh lyrics with this almost like infectious pop tunes, right? It's yeah. like you're listening and you go, wow, that's a great tune. And then yeah. you listen, what did he just did say? Did he just drop the F? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know, 100%. It, it's very rare that there's a direct condemnation or even exaltation in, in his writing. Yeah. So. Anyway, it looks like you want to cook something. I'm hungry. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's cook some food and then uh, we'll talk a little bit more. Cool. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, sitting before us is an English breakfast, a full English fry-up. The ingredients of the fry-up are sausage links. Um, I'm not sure what you would call their bacon. Their bacon is different than our bacon. Uh, So I'm using Canadian bacon, blood sausage, fried mushrooms, fried tomatoes, fried bread. Key is fried bread. And uh, Heinz baked beans. And eggs, of course. Two eggs over easy. And I'm about to pour, you, traditionally you'll be pouring pouring HP sauce over it, which is like the the English version of like a steak sauce or yeah. I think they use Brown that. sauce. Brown sauce, yeah. yeah. I, like an idiot, didn't get that. So I actually have something similar. It's called pick a pepper sauce. It's just Jamaican sauce and it's, it's brown, does the same job. But I think that is primarily going to go with your eggs or, you know. This kind of food, you just are just supposed to mush it all together. And that's supposed to be the glory of it. It's like if you're eating all of these different things in one big pile, all of the essences and the grease and the textures will all mix together into one big pile. And one big cholesterol it, pile. Exactly. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'm looking at here is, is the Heinz baked beans. That's like one of the important things is you're supposed to have a Heinz baked bean versus like a Bush's baked bean, which I have plenty of in my house. Uh, but I, I had to go traditional, so we had to get it. So it's in a, like a light tomato sauce is, is the idea of what, what these beans are. But I, they're essentially the same type of bean. I have no idea what the right what bean it actually is. Some kind of a white bean. Heinz baked. Heinz baked. Heinz baked. 
Allow me to go on record to say that the answer is navy beans, otherwise known as haricot beans. And yes, it's the same type of bean used in Bush's baked beans and Heinz baked beans. Delicious. So I'll let you on and twistle. Let's have a bite. About what I expected. <laughs> Gets the job done. Now, I I had read a little bit online about you know, what traditionally is supposed to go with this. And a lot of them say that there should be a potato. And there is a particular style of potato, and it's called bubble and squeak. Bubble and squeak, yeah. Yeah. You know about bubble and squeak? I do know, yeah. Mm. I had to learn about it. It sounds like it's like, it seems like it's kind of a mashed potato. You boil, from something I saw, you, you, you boil a potato, and then you put it through a masher, and um, they recommend what I had saw like recommended uh, not just mushing it with your traditional like potato masher like we do in America, but there's like a thing that it squeezes it through and makes makes the 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 potatoes really like fluffy, a lot fluffier. I think it's a similar thing that we use in the Italian cuisine when we're making gnocchi. We we kind of use that same kind of deal. And then you mix um, some onion and most importantly, some cabbage. Like you boil the cabbage in the water that you've boiled the potatoes in. And that's supposed to be the deal. Uh, so I, I don't have that. I didn't go that far. I'm just going with uh, this. This is like what I remember when I've been to England to get an English fry up. This is kind of what I've gotten. And this is plenty. I yeah. Mean, there's a lot of food here. It's, it's, it's a ton of food. I mean, because the... the the whole reason that this dish exists is back in the day, you know, they took their breakfast very seriously and they, they didn't necessarily put it all in a big pile. It would be like a, a big buffet. And so you'd just go and, and take whatever you're, you're going to take, but you know, it would be sort of bragging, like, look at all the different meats we have, you know? So <laughs> it would just be a ton of meat. And, uh, and I, you know, I feel this, this food feels very masculine to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it because everything is fried. There's no like it doesn't use the buzzwords that ladies like. You know, the, nothing is gr- like grilled or you know poached. It's a fried egg. You know, <laughs> it's fried mushrooms, fried tomatoes, fried bread. It's ridiculous. You know, it's surprising how many food references and imbibing references and ingesting references there are in the Who's output. Oh yeah, you know, and it's it, funny. This gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about. Like the Who's second, is this their second proper album? The Who Sell Out? Third. Third? Yeah. Which one's in, what's, oh, it's. Quick One. Right? Quick One. So okay. yeah, My Generation, Quick One slash Happy Jack, basically the same album released in the States as that, and, the, and then Sell Out. Yeah. Yeah. But Fried Eggs are mentioned specifically in uh, Quadrophenia. Are they? All right. Yeah. My Fried Egg makes me sick first thing in the morning. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, right. Um, you you shared with me that there there is a clip out there, of, and and you gave me the DVD, which I can't wait to watch the whole thing in context because watching the one clip is a little. I don't, I don't imagine if this is going to make it make any more sense, but it's it's Pete Townsend making breakfast in the morning. Yeah, and he's sort of making a poor man's version of of. An English fry up of the fry up, yeah. But he's cooking his eggs in the microwave. Like he's cooking most things in the microwave. Yeah, he's got. Uh, well, what goes into the microwave is um, the eggs, the 
tomato slice and um, the bacon. Mm-hmm. And he literally puts it, and this is 1983. Yeah. Uh, and the, I mean, the microwave is about half the size of this room. Yeah. You know, it's huge. Yeah, that that I think probably at this point, most of that video is like on YouTube. Yeah. But, uh, you know, forever it was just available on VHS because he had made this kind of promotional special um, <clears throat> for MTV for actually the album I was talking about earlier, the uh, All the Best Cowboys album. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's it's quite an interesting little documentary. Mm, nice. And so he's talking during that bit of it, which is pretty early in this documentary, uh, about how he's coming out of a very dark period, which is true. I mean, he finally cleaned up his life a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, he had abstained from drug use through most of the 70s. But by the time you get to However Much I Booze, into um, Who By Numbers, and then very much after Keith died, he really has a very, very, very bad couple of years. Yeah. And he, he flatlines at least a few times. Oh, he's, really? Oh, yeah. And he's very, very nasty drug habit. And he, he cleans up. And so, you know, It's Hard came out in 1982, but so did the Cowboys album. And mm-hmm. you can't get too much more of a contrast between a uh, not particularly interesting or great album and, you know, Cowboys, which is, you know, taken as a whole, is just an amazing album. Um, wow. It's got some things that are a bit sonically dated. Um, okay. But compositionally, it's really quite amazing so let me talk about my food a little bit more um (laughs) one of the most controversial items on on this plate here is the blood sausage um and one of the the problems of not living in england when you're trying to put this food together is trying to locate all of the ingredients there's a website that very plainly states that it's not a proper english fry up unless you're using locally sourced food that has grown there there in England. So if you are making this abroad, they will allow for substitutions. As I mentioned before, I live in a Polish neighborhood, so I was able to pick up some Polish black sausage. And I feel it's it's a little bit grainier. It's still made with with blood and pork, but it has kind of big chunks of barley in it. So they actually call this barley sausage. It's all the all the essential ingredients. But the texture is a little different. But I am finding that it does go very well, pairs well with everything that's on this plate. So I don't think that I would eat a blood sausage on its own, but you know, you contrast it with the brightness of the tomato and the savoriness of the mushrooms and, of course, like kind of the sweetness and, and uh, the hardiness of these baked beans. It, it, it all kind of works together. Have you had an English fry-up before? Uh, not a full. No, I I very well might have <clears throat> liked to, but I don't think my doctor would uh, allow too many of these, yeah. just in terms of the caloric and uh, cholesterol. Yeah, nor would my doctor, who also happens to be my wife. <laughs> right. Keeping well, close, close tabs on the home front. Yeah, which is sometimes good for me, that I have someone very close to what's going in and out of my body to... Was that too graphic? (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyways. Well, bravo to the chef. Ah, thank you. I mean, I, I, you know, I had made a, like a vegetarian version of this and, um, it was great. Like you just, you don't, I can't remember what I replaced the meats with. I got a couple ideas for you there. How about halloumi? That's a good one. And tempeh. Excellent. Excellent replacements. And you know, throw in your hash browns there. boy. You still have beans. You still do all of the vegetables, maybe more so. So uh, it's a lot of protein. It's going to really get your day started. And it's, it, it was kind of one of those foods that sort of brought all of England together. Even like the, even the poor and the gentry would still consume this food because um, it was enough sustainability that once the workers got onto the field or got to the factory doing whatever it is they're going to do, this was good to sustain them throughout the day and get a good, good day's worth of work out of everybody. What is your uh, favorite thing on this plate? Um, well, I haven't tried everything. The mm -hmm. toast looks good. I haven't tried it yet. It's uh, fried toast. Fried toast. Well, I think what you were saying earlier about kind of mashing it all together definitely holds. You know, no single thing to say this is amazing. It's kind of a combination palette, mm. you know, overload. So. Overload. Yeah. That's a good word. Especially Since, when thinking about the who. I was about to say it's the Keith Moon effect. You know, exactly. Wh which of the 12 toms all tuned the same way is your favorite? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that poor drum tech who had to bring all of those drums. <laughs> had to salvage all those drums. Yeah, exactly. Unless, of course, Keith Moon is uh, passed out on top of them. Dude, that, was, that was during the Quadrophenia tour, right? There's, there's a show, you can find it on YouTube, where they're starting to play and then he literally passes out on his drums. Yeah, well, there's... Um Rather famously, there was a guy, can't remember his name. He was literally, Pete said to the audience, does anybody play drums? Yeah. I mean, somebody good. <sighs> and he, you know, he came up, he, he was young. He was like 19 or something. The man's name was Scott Halpin. He actually passed away February 9th, 2008. He was an American artist and musician. And yeah, he just happened to be at that show at that time. And I guess he was friends with uh, promoter Bill Graham pointed at him and said, can you do it? And he said, yes. So he came out and they went into the riff of a song called Smokestack Lightning, very loose blues jam. Uh, they saw that he could play, so they started to turn it into the song Spoonful, and then they gave the song Naked Eye a shot. Uh, Naked Eye has a lot of uh, contrasting tempos, and uh, Townsend was trying to direct him, and it didn't quite work out, but... This is after they had tried to revive Keith Boone, by the way. He uh, passed out and revived and then ended up passing back out again on his drums. And that's when they brought in old Scotty to take care of it. So there you go. Carry on. I don't know. Roger kind of tells a story where this sort of happened. And um, he whatever pills that he was taking didn't allow him to like feel his body. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the show, they, they wheeled him out in a, in a wheelchair. Yeah. And he was unable to, like, the next night, he was still... Well, there's... He, like, slowly would get the, the feeling in his arms so he could do the top part. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, uh, you know, there are so many Keith Moon stories that, you know, <clears throat> have just become legend, whether they're true or not. Yeah. Um, there's a very famous one um, about... 
just to give you an idea of, in terms of drugs, how ahead of the time Keith was, because nowadays you'd read about something like this and everybody would say, well, yeah, like, that was on page five of the New York Times last week. Everybody's doing that. But um, there was a time where somebody offered him a horse tranquilizer and said, you know, if you take half of this, um, you know, I'll give you a nice buzz. And... You know, it's horse tranquilizer is actually supposed to, it's like dart a horse with, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Keith said, half, I'm Keith Moon. Took, you know, a handful of them. Paralyzed himself. And the way the story goes, and um, Pete says that he has it on like Super 8. Like he has film of it, but I've never, I don't think it's seen the light of day. But the story is that um, he was absolutely, quite literally paralyzed. They brought a doctor, and the doctor, you know, took his pulse and said, "My God, you know, his heart is being once every thirty seconds. He's he's clinically dead." And Keith, apparently, the only thing he could do, <clears throat> completely paralyzed, was go, "Fuck you," <laughs> 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 and that was it. You know, that's funny. Oh, no, Lord knows how much that has been embellished over the years. But, yeah. Um, yeah, that's sort of part of the folklore of, of Keith Moon. There's a lot of a lot of things he did, and, and surprisingly, he did most of those things. But um, well, Alice Cooper said something along the lines of, uh, you know, lots of things are said about me, and most of them are not, I've not actually done. Yeah. You know, he said with, with Keith, most of the stories are true, and then there are all these other things that are also true, but you won't even, you know, hear. Yeah, never Just, hear about it. It's more than you even think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Famously, you know, Keith, Keith's drinking times live on. He had created a thing called the Hollywood Vampires, and it consisted of this bar above a very famous L.A. club. But it became like this is exclusive club that was only for rock stars. And part of the members of the group were Keith Moon. I think he was the starter of the group. Uh, and I think, I don't know if there's like another, uh, uh, is it Harry Nielsen that starts the group? Yeah, it's Harry. And this was also coincided with John Lennon's so-called Lost Weekend. Yes. So it was- Which I hear there's a there's like a new documentary coming out about that. Oh, really? About his Lost oh. Weekend, yeah. Um, so yes, of course, we've got- uh, John Lennon's in there, Mickey Dolan's from The Monkeys. The Monkeys, Alice Cooper, and Joe Walsh. Yeah. It's quite a lineup. Yeah, you can only imagine. Um I, I don't know who's still alive to uh, only uh only Alice Cooper is around to sort of speak with any sort of cognitive I mean, Mickey's still alive, isn't he? Mickey Dolan's is still alive. He's he's the That's one true. survivor. Yeah. And so is Joe Walsh. Debatably. (laughs) Right. It's it's, um, Ringo's brother-in-law. Really? Joe. Yeah. Oh, wow. But um, one other thing about this, the the English fry-up, it's it's not only do do the ingredients mix together on your plate, but you're also supposed to mix them together while you're cooking them. So it was very conscious to, like, cook the meat. And so once the fats of the meat had, had rendered a little bit, Cook the mushrooms in that. Uh, but meanwhile, I continually to uh, add, you know, other fats to your your 
pans such as butter and or oil. So that's kind of what I did the whole time. And um, once you're like, once you've cooked your mushrooms, which cook for about about eight to 10 minutes. For these, I, I kind of cubed them instead of slicing them. After they're starting to get soft, kind of push them to the side and then put on your tomatoes. And I used cherry tomatoes this time, which I thought was a good choice. Cherry tomatoes I find to be a little bit more flavorful. And uh, I think they really pair up nicely with the beans. After that, you butter whatever kind of bread you have. I think traditionally they like white bread. So I've got some nice organic white bread and you butter it and then you, you put it in the pan, kind of like you're making like a grilled cheese, except there's no filling. So <laughs> you just grill both sides. And I've also said that tradition, I've also heard traditionally you're supposed to put grilled and ungrilled bread, but I just, I didn't want to overdo it. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, well, it certainly is a hearty meal. It is. I am sad that I don't have traditional HP sauce. I think that that would have been the best addition to this. But other than that, everything's everything's good. Well, this is quite close. I mean, it's it almost like a Worcestershire sauce. Totally. All right. So let me ask you. The Who today. Is it the, is it still The Who? <sighs> That's a really loaded question, isn't it? It sure is. And I'm eating, you know. Um <laughs> Well, I think just throughout their entire history, part of the issue is actually just defining what the hell that is. You know, after Keith died, people said, well, it's not the same. Well, of course it's not the same. You know, I'm not the same as I was 20 years ago either, and I'm just one person, let alone like a four-person, you know, four-headed monster. Sure. Or in the case of The Who at this point, you know, 60 years or we're almost at. Oh, yeah. So... Mm -hmm. You know, I think at the end of the day, it just is different and you're just in different eras and different phases. You know, look at the, you could take any, any band that's been around long enough is going to go through that, right? You get the Sid Barrett days of Pink Floyd mm -hmm. and there's this kind of transition. And then there's the glory days of Gilmore Waters not killing each other. Uh, and you get great masterpieces then. And then there's post Waters. You get it in the Stones. You know, yeah. you've got the, the Brian Jones stuff, and then he dies. It, the Stones aren't over at that point. No. By any stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. They're just kind of getting yeah, up. Exactly. Uh, and then, you know, Bill Wyman leaves, and it's like, yeah, I, most people, if they go see the Stones, I think. But, but, then, right, but, but then an interesting <clears throat> thing that, funny you bring that up, they brought Bill Wyman back when they did, I think, the 50th anniversary of, I don't know if it's the Rolling Stones or for Exile on Main Street, something like that. But they they bring Bill Wyman back to play for a couple of tunes, right? And it, it kind of sucks, <laughs> you know, because like Bill Wyman of yesteryear is not the Bill Wyman of today. So, well, he's older than the rest of them. That yeah, that's um, true too. But it's like if you're not keeping up with your instrument, if you're not playing, if you're not a part of like the, right. the organism that is the band, right? You know, it's not that anymore. <clears throat> you know, and maybe you can even say, was Keith Moon Keith Moon as we get to these last albums? Like, he's just barely hanging on. Yeah, though the things that he actually does manage to pull off, I think he does uh, fine on. The, it, we don't hear really the toil that went into getting the final product on, for example, um, Who Are You? Yeah. You know, he if you listen to the track, he is he as explosive as he is on the early stuff? No, but actually... He's fine. It yeah. works well, you know. 
new song works well. Who Are You, obviously, mm-hmm. works really, really well. It's just different drumming from him. You know, and then uh, Music Must Change, he it isn't in on that. They just said, okay, we'll let it go. He couldn't get the 6-8 time down. Mm-hmm. This is why you get the shoes squeaking. And I wondered if then I could hear him do all of your dreams. I realize now it was really the sound of your screams. Uh, and then a couple of symbol things on oh, it. Okay. Because he, he literally just couldn't go, you know, bump like that. Yeah. Um, which is fine. I mean, it's a, it's a solid album. Uh, and I, I think it's it's underrated, including Keith's uh contribution to it. It did quite well at the time because among other reasons, because he did die uh, yeah. not that long after it was released. And so you know, and it's got him sitting there on the chair that says not to be taken away. And yes, all these weird things. Yeah. But you just saw them a few months ago, right? Yeah, Madison Square Garden. Was um, a satisfying night? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the who. They're not going to put on a bad show, um, even when they have a bad show. Yeah. And certainly not at this stage. It's a very well-oiled machine. Yeah. You know, was it the greatest show I've ever seen? No. Um, but it it was really excellent. And um, for me, I was very happy to hear uh, – they did a couple of songs that I never thought I'd have a chance to hear live. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, you know, they did the Relay, for example. Oh, wow. Um, so it was really good. And you can debate whether – how much the orchestra added to it or not. Um, but, I mean, you're talking about guys who are pushing their 80s, you know, and – Yeah, it's amazing that they're, they're out there at all. Yeah, um, and doing so well. Um, yeah. You know, Roger's voice is, that was one of the amazing things was actually both of their voices were really good. And there have been periods when it hasn't been that good. You sure. know, Pete's voice has gone down an octave or 20 mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. And it's kind of sounding more and more like a kind of old blues legend or, uh, you know, way down in the baritone there. Yeah. At this point, we we only had Pete and Roger left. Well, I was going to say earlier that with a lot of the groups, whether people want to admit it or not, there is that linchpin, you know, where no matter how what your feelings are about an individual member, mm. that's fine. But then there's always the one or the two that are the indispensable things. You know, in, in the Stones, it's Keith Richards. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, if he had been the one who had died. The Stones are not there, you yeah. know. Even with Mick Jagger there, it's not them. Right, in, in Guns N' Roses, it's Slash. Yeah, and... <laughs> <laughs> really? I, th- I thought it was Izzy. No, um, that's you know, also true. <laughs> in The Who, it, it it is Pete, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of his alter ego, but it's also just that that chemical thing and that branding you know, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, the 1989 tour was called the Kids Are All Right Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, Which kids? Well, <laughs> here, herein lies the problem. Uh, so I, of course, had at least two, maybe three or four T-shirts, you know, from the tour, and mm-hmm. you know, I was a kid. And <laughs> unfortunately, it wasn't. It, we were still in the era of uh, New Kids on the Block. Uh huh. And so yeah. I remember like wearing the shirt and some, you know, 
idiot behind me at school saying, oh, yeah, it's a new kids on the block thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, how do you even answer it outside yeah. of maybe a punch up? I think a punch would be. A yeah, it's just like, yeah, you know, it was just such an insulting thing to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was, again, one of those things of, yeah, but he probably, like, wouldn't have known the who were the who yeah, song. Yeah, this is an educational moment. Yeah. As so, they say. Well, sit down, my child. Let me tell That's you. Right. Um, and th- maybe that spawned your entire, uh, you know, second life of being a teacher of 60s rock and roll. Oh, <laughs> proselytizer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think that's a good segue out of this. All right. Nice work, Eric. We we killed this one. <laughs> Thank you very we much. We smashed this Reckenbacher into the wall and <laughs> glued turned, it back together. And then smashed it again. Right. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for making the trek out of here. Well, to thank old, you very uh, much. Polish land, Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, I appreciate it very, very yeah. much indeed. And thanks Excellent. for inviting me. Wonderful to break bread with you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Good gravy. Did you make it through that whole thing? Good for you. That was a wealth of information like Godfather 1 and 2 of Who Podcast, but not 3. Special thanks again to Eric Chernow for sharing your vast knowledge of all things Pete Townsend and Co. Thanks to Izzy's Coffee out of Asheville, North Carolina. Folks, I encourage you, if you like the show, rate the show on your favorite podcasting outlet, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the like. You'll help our niche show get into the hearts and tummies of other food and music lovers. I'm officially heading off for vacation for the next five and a half weeks, so it'll be a minute before we return, but I already know we're going to be recording an episode all on Pearl Jam. It's in the cards. Until then, enjoy your July, and thanks for tuning in to This Band Could Be Your Food. I'm your host, Nate Palin, saying cook on and rock out. Ciao, ciao, everybody. Ciao.